your Bibles to Acts. Acts chapter 16. We're going to start at verse 1. Acts chapter 16. I don't intend to take a long time this morning, but I make no promises. I want to talk to you about God's call. God's calling on your life. How many of you would, would say, and please be honest with me, I, I don't need affirmation. I'm actually looking for information. How many of you would say that you have felt called by God, either in a moment or in a, in a longer season? You felt called by God with a sense of purpose and with a sense of mission. You had something God gave you to do, and you knew that he was calling you. By show of hands, you have felt a sense of calling. Awesome. Okay, so many of us here. And I would include myself in this. We're going through a series on the surprises of God. And this is a very interesting passage that I haven't, to be honest with you, I haven't spent a lot of time reading. But it's in my mind and in my heart, it's connected to another passage in the Gospels that we're going to go to that I'm just stuck on. It's, it's lodged in my brain uh, like a puzzle, like a riddle that I'm, I'm feeling the Holy Spirit unlock for me. And that's in... Uh, we're going to go there eventually, but it's in Matthew chapter 21, verse 28. So if you're one of those people who takes notes or likes to flip ahead in your iPhone, you can go there. But we're going to read the story, and then we're going to just kind of go through it as we go. So we're reading about the missionary journeys of Paul, and he's being accompanied by Luke, and the gospel of Acts, or sorry, the book of Acts, is now being uh, a record of their present journey. So it's kind of cool because the, the tense of the writing changes. It's not talking about things that happened then and there, but it's actually talking about things that just happened to us as though we're reading the journal of Luke on these missionary journeys. And it says in Acts chapter 16, and they went through the region. Uh, now, I'm not going to get any of these right, just so you know. They sound like uh, someone clearing their throat. Phrygia? Phrygia. And Galatia. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. Am I doing okay? But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went right down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, including that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Here's the interesting thing about what's happening in Paul's journeys. If you remember from a few weeks back, Paul was originally named Saul, and he was a, a violent radical who was against the way and the followers of the way. He was persecuting Christians he was rounding them up and he was uh, putting them to death, basically. Uh, putting them on trial for blasphemy and then putting them to death by stoning. And he has this radical encounter where he meets Jesus on the road and Jesus says, it is I that you're persecuting because Jesus always identifies with the suffering of his people. He always experiences the suffering of his people. And Saul is radic radically transformed and he takes on the name Paul, and he actually, according to church tradition, he spends about 10 years 
growing in his faith before he leaves. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we, we just don't have a sense of time, and so it feels like in a couple verses, you know, Saul was Paul, and Paul is awesome, and he's this major apostle, and he's traveling, and he's got this ministry, when in reality, it was quite the journey to unlearn the, the way of violence and the way of tribalism and the way, way of exclusion and to learn a new way of relating to Yahweh, the God that he served and the God that was now revealed in Christ. But what I find, first of all, so fascinating about this passage is that Paul does not get instruction on where to go. He first and foremost gets resistance on where he planned to go. I don't know if this is true in your life. It's definitely true in mine. I intend to do something and I think I'm right to do it. And then I experience a closed door that's locked in my face. And sometimes I make the resistance I feel, maybe I make that my own inadequacy or maybe I make that the enemy attacking me. When in reality, this is God's calling revealed to Paul. Sometimes God first stops you from doing something before he invites you to do something else. Sometimes your calling is actually revealed in what you're not supposed to do and where you're not supposed to go, as opposed to what you are supposed to do and you are supposed to go. And so Paul, in his calling, he just wants to go. He just wants to go and preach the gospel. And he's going to go anywhere that will receive him. But of course, he tries to go one place, and the door is closed, and he tries to go another, and then he receives a vision calling him to a third location. And this brings up a lot of interesting dynamics about what it means to be called by God. Sometimes we feel called to make a difference, let's say, in our neighborhood, or let's say, in our workplace. Sometimes we feel called to do something for a particular season, for a particular length of time. And then sometimes we receive a sense of calling that lasts us many years or even our lifetime. And what we want God to do is we want God to make the destination plain to us. We want him to show us where we're going so that we know how to get there and so that we can trust in ourselves as opposed to the ever-present, ever-guiding voice of the Holy Spirit. We're spoiled in this way that we want God to plug in the end destination on our GPS so that we can figure out the road from here to there. And what's really interesting about Paul and his calling is that God doesn't tell him where to go. He just decides to go places and then God decides to direct him as he's going. I was struggling with a sense of calling when I was uh, in high school and I brought this to my grandpa, Grandpa Ken Bombay. And he said... Well, I, you know, I, I wanted him to tell me what I was called to do. <laughs> and he said, well, what are you doing? Where are you going? And I said, nothing and nowhere. <laughs> he said, have you ever tried to direct a ball that isn't moving? And I was like, no. He's like, you need to start doing something. And then God will course correct. He will give you direction if you begin the momentum. So many people are waiting for a sense of calling and they're not doing anything. Lord, I'm here. I'm waiting. Whenever you want to call me, you know my number. All you got to do is just ring me. I'd do the hotline bling dance, but that would just be wrong and bad. And I like the Raptors, but I'm not that good at impersonating Drake. <laughs> 
<laughs> but a lot of people are waiting for God to ring them over, a head, over the head with their destiny, with their calling, when in reality they're not moving. And so then the problem becomes you can't direct something that has no momentum. So what happens in our story is that Paul, on his missionary journey, is intending to preach the gospel, and he goes to one place, and he, he re experiences resistance, so he tries to go to another, and then he experiences a vision that tells him to go to a third place. So God is calling you, and he is directing you, but he needs you to initiate the momentum. So if you're waiting to be rung over the head with a sense of purpose... If you're waiting to come alive to the purpose of God because he's going to set a fire under your butt, you're going to wait a really long time. Because I know God loves me and because I know he's good, I take his silence as permission. I'm going to say that again because I don't think everybody got it. Because I know he loves me and because I know he's good, I take his silence as permission. So many people are, are hesitating and they're waiting because they're actually not confident in the goodness of God. They're actually not confident that if they do the wrong thing, God will redirect them. I spoke with another spiritual father. This is now when I was uh, finishing Bible college. And I said, I just... I'm so concerned that I'll, I'll step towards my destiny, I'll step towards my future, and I'll go down this path, and I'll, I'll do all these things, and they won't be what, what God wanted me to do. He said, Connor, do you believe that there's anything you could do that would cancel your destiny? Do you believe there's anything you could do that could cancel God's call on your life? And I was thinking about like, what I could do, right? I was thinking, like, well, I could like, murder someone at a bus stop, I could get addicted to drugs. I'm thinking, there's lots of things I could do to ruin my destiny. So I said, yeah, of course, there's lots of things I could do. And he said, yeah, see, that's where you and I disagree. He says, I believe God loves me and God is so sovereign that there's really nothing that could keep me from what God has called me to do. And I realized that I was stuck in fear and the fear was not rooted in failure. The fear was rooted in the idea that if I failed, God's goodness wouldn't be present in my life. My fear was that he didn't actually love me and support me as much as I wanted to believe. So some of us are hesitating in moving because we actually need to refresh ourselves on the goodness of God. Like you actually don't need more money to start that business that you want to start. And you don't need the prophetic word of the Lord that comes to you and says it is time. The Lord is like Arnold Schwarzenegger in this case. It is time to start your business. Go, my son. No, it's not like that. It's never like that. Most of the people who change the world do it by accident. They do it by accident because on the way to do what they're passionate about, they take silence as permission and they start going in a certain direction and the Lord course corrects them as they're wrong. But the transformation does not come because they had some lightning bolt of inspiration. It comes because they decided to trust that God is good and that God loves them and God is releasing them into their future. Yeah. 
And this love is said in the context of freedom. Any good parent knows you don't want to micromanage all your children's behaviors. What do I do now, Dad? Go have fun. Go play. Go make a mess. Not in the house, please. Right? You do not need to wait any longer for some grand endorsement of your calling. And if you wait for a lightning bolt of inspiration that will set you apart, you might wait a very, very long time. Now, please don't misunderstand. There is really good reason for seasons of waiting. I am not saying that there is not a place and a time and a season for waiting. But I am saying that if you're feeling a lack of direction and if you're feeling a lack of purpose and you're wondering when God is going to jumpstart your life into your destiny, I'm suggesting to you that you might have your wires crossed a little bit. Because what God actually wants you to do is take silence's permission and act with the inspiration and the courage that he's already placed inside you. Trusting in his goodness and trusting that he will give you course correction. This is all set in the context of humility, right? Like if I decide that I want to go do something and then the Holy Spirit begins to give me feedback and I'm proud and I'm independent and I don't want to take no from anybody, then I could go off into a ditch and it's going to take even greater course correction for God to bring me back into the place that he's called me to be. This is why God resists the proud but, but gives grace to the humble. This is all predicated on the idea that when you start going for it with your passion and with your intensity, you are also going to learn some things. You're also going to be wrong. And in Paul's case, he went in the totally different direction than he was called to go in. And you might say to yourself, well, why didn't he just wait for a vision in the first place? Because he didn't get the vision until he went in the wrong direction. Like, you have to sometimes go in the wrong direction to find the right direction. This is not like he, he didn't buy a flight. Do you understand what I'm saying? This isn't like, oh, whew, that was a waste of four hours. No, this is like months of a journey. He gets to the spot and he re encounters resistance and then he goes, okay, I guess I'm going to try it over here. And so he goes in a different direction and then he has the vision. And so some of us are caught up because we don't want to waste time and we don't want to fail and we're we're afraid that we're going to do the wrong thing. And we don't realize that it's actually in doing the wrong thing and having the humility to learn and having the humility to grow that God can bring the course correction and lead us in a different direction. I want to start a business. Well, it could be that your business fails and it could be that the lesson you were supposed to learn was in the failure of your business. I'm not saying that God doesn't want your business to succeed. But I'm saying that there's a whole lot of lessons in failure that some people are too afraid to learn. It's like the old story of Thomas Edison when they asked him about how many times he invented the light bulb. And they said, you have, you've had, what is it, 895 failures or whatever it was, 897 failures. He says, no, I just learned 870, 897 ways not to make a light bulb. And this leads me to the second point about God's calling, which is that if you reduce your calling down, <laughs> there's a phrase that I just, it's so cliche and I just love to hate it. It's um, when God opens, when God closes a door, he opens a window. Have you ever thought about how silly that is? 
Like, what sort of father is like, no, son, can't go at the door, but climb out that window? It doesn't make any sense. But it speaks to a broader issue that is in our culture, especially in Christian culture, which is this idea that God only leads and directs me through my circumstances. So when I experience resistance, it automatically means that I'm not supposed to go forward. And when I experience blessing and opportunity, it automatically means I should go forward. And what it makes us is very small and immature people who don't know how to manage our freedom. Sometimes God will reveal to you through your circumstances that you need to change direction. And this happens in our story. In one of the places that sounds like phlegm, they go to speak the word, to God, word of God, but the spirit of Jesus doesn't allow them. Okay? So sometimes you're going to go to do what you're called to do, and you experience resistance, and you discover that resistance is actually the Lord. It's not just my circumstances. It's not the devil. It's actually God redirecting me. Okay? But sometimes we experience resistance, and it's actually not a sign that we're supposed to stop or that we're supposed to change direction. Sometimes resistance is a sign we're supposed to get bigger. And if you reduce God's voice to the opportunities and challenges of your circumstances, that was almost really bad. People on the podcast have no idea that I almost crashed and burned. If you reduce God's calling down to the opportunities and challenges of your circumstances into a series of closed and open doors, you will always live small and you will never live free. When I hear Christians talk about, well, you know, like, God closed that door, but he opened a door over here. I'm like, are you, you're, you're not an animal. Like, this is, this is what pets do, right? <laughs> you put a, like, we have Delta at the house, right? We put Delta in the pantry. My parents put Delta in the pantry when people are over upstairs. If you open the door, Delta will come out because the door's open. So you keep the animal trapped in the room with the two closed doors. And then when you want the pet to come out of the room, you open the door and the pet goes, oh, the door is open. I guess I'll go through the door. You're not God's pet. You're his child. So you need to... You need to perhaps think on a level of maturity higher than simply, the door is open, I must go through it. The door is closed, that must mean it's not God's will. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God, God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, if we can't simply trust that an open door means I'm supposed to go through it, and a closed door means I'm supposed to change direction, then how do we trust what God is calling us to do? Well, this is why God needs to interrupt us with surprises that include prophecy, Dreams and visions, friends who give us encouraging words, spiritual fathers and mothers who give us feedback, uh, revelation from scripture. This is why we need God to interrupt our lives with his surprises. Because if we reduce our lives down to our circumstances, then we'll always, like water, follow the path of least resistance to the lowest place. 
But in this case, Paul goes in one direction, he hits a roadblock. He goes in another direction, he hits a roadblock. And it's in that moment, he hears the Spirit of God speak to him and say, go to Macedonia. And believe me, when you hear one yes, it's worth a thousand no's. When you know what God has called you to do, and when he has given you his yes, it's worth all the resistance. It's worth all the wasted time. It's worth all the difficulty and the challenge. I really believe that there are some people in here who have dreams in their heart that are from the Lord, and you have a calling that is also from God, but it's going to require a lot from you. It's going to require years of your life. It's going to require your best and unless we become big people who are willing to face a thousand no's before we find the one yes, we might live short of our destiny. But I'm letting you know from personal experience, when you hear God's yes, it's worth it. It's worth the challenge and the resistance and the difficulty that you face. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside where we were, where we were supposed, sorry, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Thank you, Dad. Whew. A seller of purple goods. Can you imagine having a business where you're like, I'm into purple. What do you do? I just sell purple. Who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Here's an interesting thing that happens when you pursue your destiny. When you hear the yes of God and you go after your calling, there will inevitably be plot twists. Here's the plot twist. Paul has a vision of a man saying, come to Macedonia, and he meets a woman. He's like, we're going to go preach to the men of Macedonia. They are longing for the gospel. And then he gets there, and the only people who are willing to listen to him are women. And there's this one lady who sells purple stuff. And she's particularly open, and she receives Jesus, and she gets baptized, and then she has to convince them to stay with her. But church tradition teaches that she was an apostolic leader in the early church. She basically had to fight her way into history because Paul had a vision from the Lord. This was from God. You have to hear me on this. Of a man. And then God surprised Paul with the woman. When you go to pursue your destiny in God, you're gonna start walking on a road where you're called to do certain things and you're called to say certain things. You're called to embody certain things. And you are convinced, you have such a deep conviction of what it's supposed to look like. 
And I'm just letting you know God's going to surprise you with the plot twist where it's going to be someone completely different than you expect. It's going to be 100% of his purpose, but it's going to be 0% of what you predicted. Here's another reason why we get discouraged. Because we know God has called us to do something and he gives us a vision for it and that it never works out the way we thought it would. Has anyone noticed this? I'm called to, to be a light to my family. I'm called to be a light to my workplace. I'm called to start this business. I'm called to be a great parent to my kids. And we think we have this grand ambition. We have this vision for what our life could be. And the vision is from the Lord. And then we actually get into the nitty-gritty, and the details are all wrong. This is how God does it. Like, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to alleviate the pressure that some of you might feel. This whole time, we've been trying to make the vision God has given us come to pass. And when we actually go to do the thing, it looks completely different than what we intended. And this is what God wanted all along. I really think that we are called as a people to be people who live with great purpose to be people who live with a divine sense of destiny and with the desire to make our lives have an impact on the world around us. But if, I feel like a lot of us might feel trapped by the pressures and the limitations of everyday life. And I'm, I'm trying to give you good news this morning. All the resistance and all of the details that have gotten mixed up between your vision and how it actually got implemented, this has all been part of God's plan. Because he didn't give you the end result and he didn't give you the final destination. Instead, he invited you to walk with him so that you wouldn't just be people of purpose without presence, but that you'd be people of purpose who rely on his presence. This is why God continues to surprise us with plot twists. This is why God sends Paul a vision of a man saying, come to Macedonia, and the only person who listens to him is a woman. Because God likes to throw curveballs, and you're like, that's not fair, that's not very nice. But it is because that's what makes it fun. This has got to be fun. If it's not fun, what are we doing this for? We're not God's pets. We're not his robots. He can do all of this without us, but he is inviting us on a journey where he brings us into maturity. Okay. This might feel like totally disconnected, and very random, and I will do my best to bring it together because it all makes sense in my brain. But I cannot fax you my brain. I can only use these words 
which are a bit jumbly-bumbly today. But we're going to go to Matthew 21, and we're going to read a parable of Jesus that I really dislike. Are you ready? Matthew 21, verse 28 says this. This is Jesus talking. He says, What do you think? Man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here's why I hate this parable. I hate this parable because there's only two sons. I would like there to be a third son. This is what I'd like the third son to say. The master comes to his third son, and he says, Son, I'd like you to go work in the field. And the son says, I will go, Dad. And then he goes. <laughs> Unfortunately, there aren't more than two sons in this parable. There's only one son who says he will go, and then he doesn't. And then there's another son who says he won't go, and he does. And here's the really interesting thing about this parable. It reveals to me that if I am relating to God as a son in his kingdom, what is far less important is what I say I will do, and what I say I believe, and what I say that I am. And what is far more important is how I live. Jesus is pointing the Pharisees to prostitutes, tax collectors, sinners, dirty people who don't fit into the box of what it looks like to follow God. People whose lives are still a mess. And he says their language is wrong, but their lifestyle is right. Not their lifestyle of sin, but their willingness to follow the calling God has given them. God doesn't just call perfect Christians who have their lives together. He calls all of his children. And there are only two options. You can be the person who says the right thing and doesn't do it. Or you can be the person who might not have all your language together, but actually goes and does it. I kind of wonder if a lot of the people who don't claim and profess to be Christians yet live lifestyles of virtue where you can really tell that some love from beyond has touched their heart, I kind of wonder if those are the people who are the second sons in this parable. The kind of people who you say to them, do you serve the Lord? Not that many of us would start a conversation that way, but let's say we did, right? We're in Starbucks waiting for our drink, waiting for our frap, and we're like, hey, Tim, right? I see it on your cup. Do you serve the Lord, Tim? <laughs> see, there's a lot of people who say the wrong thing to their Heavenly Father, but they still live out 
their faithful calling. And one of the things I think I'm most concerned about, and the reason why I hate this parable, and the reason why it's kind of stuck in my brain, is because as much as I hate to admit it, I'm much more of the first son than the second. Because I gather in a place like this, and I live in a spiritual environment where I can say the right things and believe the right things, and have none of it affect my life and my choices. I can say I'm following God, and I can say that I'm living a life of love, I can say that I'm caring for the poor and the broken. And I can really, when you add it up according to my behavior and not according to my belief, I can really fall short of what the master has called me to do. What if being a son of God is far more about what we are willing to do than what we are willing to say? What if an environment like this makes it possible for us to live in hypocrisy where we convince ourselves that we're already good, we're already in, and therefore we don't necessarily need to follow the calling God has given us because it doesn't really matter whether we fulfill what he's asked us to do because we told him that we would and that's really the only thing that matters to us. See, the first son says to his dad, yeah, I'll go. And I relate to that first son because I am, I am used to being here. And I'm used to assuming that my default is yes. You know how many times I've sang, I surrender all? Probably like 800 times. You know how many times I've actually surrendered all? Like, really think about it. Like, everything. Now, am I saying that everything rests on your behavior and that what you believe doesn't matter? Am I saying that God is angry at you or that he despises you if you're living in hypocrisy? No, we all are. I'm just trying to make us honest about it. Because what I've realized is that Sometimes the practice of my religion keeps me from the relationship of actually walking out my calling with the Lord, of actually learning to trust him day by day, of actually starting with momentum and passion and allowing him to redirect me as we move toward the calling he's given me. I am not saying this as a matter of judgment. I'm simply saying this as a matter of, of measuring my life and our lives with a sense of honesty that might lead us in conviction to repentance. Sometimes I talk too fast and then I don't give us time to think about it. Because I need to think about it. See, the reason why I say yes and then don't do it is because I live out of a sense of responsibility. I live out of a sense of putting the weight of the world on my shoulders. So for example, when we come into this place, 
I am too preoccupied with the details of the service to be as present in relationship as I would like to be. So I tell myself, I'm going to spend time loving everybody, but I don't have time to love everybody. I have time to chase my kids and get on the stage to lead worship. And then when church is over, I'd love to stay and love people, but I actually really need to get home. Like some people, they say, I want to be a loving person, but they come to church late so that they avoid having to talk to people. And then they leave early so they avoid having to talk to people. And I started by confessing my own sins so that when I call you out on yours, we're even. (laughs) And the thing is, when you arrive late and you leave early, you tell yourself you have lots of good reasons to do it. I do too. Right? We all have really good reasons to say yes because we're responsible, because we have many things we need to do, because we have many details we need to cover, and because the kids aren't going to feed themselves, and because all, just go through the list of reasons why we say yes and do no. And it's actually our sense of responsibility to the life we have that is actually keeping us from our calling tomorrow. I'd really love to do the thing God's called me to do, but it just doesn't seem to work with my life the way it is right now. I'd love to start that business, but I don't have the money and I don't have the time and I don't have the opportunity. And to be honest with you, you never will. It will never get easier to say yes and to do what God has called you to do. It will never get easier to begin the momentum. (laughs) But because we feel so responsible for our lives the way they are, We never allow the Holy Spirit to interrupt us with a surprise that redirects our lives and reshapes what it is we are obligated to. There are many people who do not profess to be Christians, who do not profess to serve the Lord in any way, shape, or form, yet they're in the vineyard working. Because they're not preoccupied with their lives the way they are, They're preoccupied with a sense of purpose. With a sense of calling that comes from the Lord whether or not they claim to know him. (laughs) So here's what I'd love for us to be. I'd love for us to be a people who let go of some of our present responsibilities to embrace a creative future. I believe the Lord is moving us from responsibility into creativity. I believe he is moving us into a life where we will finally say yes to his calling and then we will work in the field like he has invited us to. To be honest with you, it's actually less important that you say yes because like I said, there's no third son in the parable. Like you might be sitting in your seat and you're like, again, I'm just leaning on this example so that it's easy to understand. You might be sitting in your seat going, yeah, you know, I really wanted to start that business but I'm not sure if I'm ready to. You don't have to say yes. Just do some Googling. Just maybe move some money around. Maybe talk to someone who knows a little bit more than you do about business and get their feedback. Maybe buy the domain name. Maybe register the business for a hundred bucks just to see. Just to see what happens. It's never going to get any easier and it's never going to get any harder. 
But who knows? Maybe when the momentum starts, maybe the saying yes is less important than the doing. Maybe beginning your calling is more important than getting your words right. Like, you, th you throw a rock in a church in any direction and you'll hit someone who claims to love the poor. Please don't throw rocks in church. But if you did, if you brought a rock today, here or in any church, you hit anybody, they'll say, oh, of course I love the poor. And then you just ask yourself, how much money did I give to the poor last week? See, maybe it's less important to say we need to care for the poor. And maybe it's just more important to give money to the poor. say to yourself, well, I actually don't like the poor. <laughs> no, like, like, can we be honest here? Like, just put yourself in the second son's place. I actually don't want to help the poor. I actually think that they deserve the kind of situation that they've brought themselves into. You should give to them anyway. Because when you give to them, what you'll discover is that God is able to redirect you into his calling for what you're brought, for what he has purposed you to do. Like we, I've said this a dozen times, and I'm going to say it again. Where your treasure is, is where your heart is. So if you're having a problem where your heart is, then just move your treasure. Like, I'd love to care more for the poor, but, you know, I just don't have any money to give to them. Well, start by giving them money, and you will soon care for the poor. Because you're giving your money to them. If you're waiting for the passion to jumpstart you into your calling, you're going to wait a really long time. But if a sense of creativity and a sense of inspiration arises inside you, even if you don't have the language right, even if you're not ready to say yes to the Lord, but you're just ready to move towards his field, you might find along the way that God has a lot to give you. Because before you said yes, you were willing to move. I'm, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm just like struggling with this. <laughs> I really am. Can I, can I give you an example of one of the things I feel called to do? I feel called to help my wife more with the meals around the house. Because for the majority of our 10 years of marriage, she has made 75 to 95% of the meals. And I can say I'm an egalitarian and yeah, girl power, but... I'm acting pretty traditional over the past decade. <laughs> I don't say, make me supper, woman. But I certainly haven't really learned to cook. So maybe there's some men here who are like me, who feel called to be more helpful around the house. What's far less important, I've discovered, is what you promise to your spouse about what you're going to do. Because like a month and a half ago, I said, honey, I've decided... I feel called to help you prepare meals for our family. So I am going to cover three suppers a week. Do you know how many suppers I've covered since I said that? It was about a week and a half after I said that that I said, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and you're going to have to help me because I'm failing spectacularly. I'm failing spectacularly at this. 
And even though I have the best of intentions, I'm actually not doing what I told myself and what I told you I was going to do. So can you help me? Can you like walk me through this? She's like, oh, it's easy. You just do this and this. And I know that there's this and this in the freezer. And then we could grab that from the pan. And I'm like, whoa, 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 slow down. Like you've been killing this for 10 years. Like you're going to have to give me the baby steps version. Like one step at a time. Because I'm trying to bite off way more than I can chew because I have the right language and the right heart, but I've not actually been able to act on my calling. Maybe it's as simple as making supper for your family. Maybe it's as big as starting a business. Maybe it's living out a care and a concern for the poor like you've always meant to. Some of you in this room are actually called to start ministries for the poor, visit the prisoner. Like, have you ever noticed? (laughs) Every time I drive by the old folks' home, I think to myself, I should really go in there and visit. Does anyone here want to admit that they feel the same way? Has anyone thought this? You drive by the old folks' home, you're like, man, I bet you there's some gold and some wisdom there, and I know that, you know, James says that, that um, true religion is looking after the widow and the orphan, I should really make some time to stop and visit the old folks in the senior center. And then I never do. I never have time. And I say to myself, well, I'm just the busiest person in the world. And meanwhile, the father is hearing my yes and seeing my no. I'm not saying that you have to do everything. And I'm not saying that the Lord judges you for this. You're still his son. You're still his daughter. One or the other. But what I am saying is that when you start to pursue your calling, when you start to act on the inspiration and the creativity that's inside you, even before you're ready to say yes, God is going to lead and guide you into your calling. There's going to be some twists along the way. There's going to be some unexpected things that change. But the people who live out the purpose of God on the earth are not the people who have all the language right. They're not the people who necessarily come to church every Sunday and claim to be a Christian. They're not the people who have their lives and their acts together and who are able to say all the right things. Those are the people we would suspect have it right. Those are the people we would suspect are serving the Lord. Think about the people minutes before Jesus told the parable. If you asked someone in the crowd, hey, who is serving the Lord? They would point at the Pharisees. They would say, look at those people are getting it right. Those people are living out faithfulness to Yahweh. But instead, we can join the company of people who let a sense of inspiration and a sense of creativity really let us change the lives we have into the lives we're called to live.